Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Hey, kids, good job. Not going to lie, that's, that's, that's pretty fun. <laughs> I love that when, um, I forget whose idea that was to do that, and it, and it actually brought back really fun memories from when I was a kid, um, because in my church growing up, we always did that. And what's really fun is Allie's grandma is the one who gave us all the palm branches. So kind of fun how the world turns there, right? So, um, but uh, hey, thank you so much for being here. It is, it is good uh, to be together, whether you're here in person or online or listening or watching to it later on. Um, we are here as followers of Jesus to celebrate his good news. Amen? And, and that's the thing is that when we turn it into something that's other than good news, it no longer is the good news. And, and so we want to focus on what the good news really is, the good news of Jesus. Um, but here's the catch. In order for the good news to be really, really good, we have to understand the bad news. And we don't like to talk about the bad news because it's cringy. It's uncomfortable. It makes us feel blah. It makes us feel yucky. And, and, but we want to be truthful. We don't hide anything. There's no part of our scripture that we, that we hide. There's no part of our doctrine, our theology, our identity that we're kind of like, oh, we don't like to talk about that with people. Or you have to get to certain levels of it to be able to get to the good stuff. Like, no, we are an open book, right? And so because we want to be so forthright with the good news, we also want to honestly talk about the bad news. And I always say things are only awkward if you make them awkward, so this morning, we're going to talk about some of the bad news. That's part of the Easter story, right? And, and, and Palm Sunday is always the interesting kind of middle ground because on one hand, last week we skipped, we're, we're, we're kind of, we went out of order. Last week, we talked about Palm Sunday. Then on Palm Sunday, we talk about Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we talk about Good Friday again. Um, but Easter is coming, right? Easter is the final word. None of the stuff leading up to Easter is the final word. Easter is the final word. But here we are. We're going through Luke. We're looking through the passage, and we're, we're taking it one chunk at a time to get to, to get to the story, to find what God is doing, what he wants us to know. And, uh, and so this morning, uh, well, last week we talked about, you know, Palm Sunday, where everybody's like waving their, their palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, Savior, Messiah, come, praise God, praise God, praise God. But you know what the bad news is? Is that within five days, those same people would be shouting, crucify, crucify. So if I'm really honest, I get, I love seeing our kids. As a kid, I always loved it. I always was like, this is so awkward, but kind of fun because we were like, woo, you know. But within five days, the ones that are waving the palm branches would also be yelling, crucify, crucify. And that's the reality of the story. And that's where we're going to dig in this morning. As a kid, um, I struggled a lot with acceptance and rejection. Um, we all do, right? Like, like, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm what I've been told I'm slightly larger than the average human being. I don't know. Uh, I've been told I've been freakishly large before. Um, people are like, what are you like, 6'4"? like thinking that's huge. And I was like, no, I'm six, seven, you know, 
like, oh, you have big feet. What are you like, size 13? I was like, try 16, right? Like, and it will just leave my weight out of this. Um, but, but like, I, people are like, so when did you grow? I was like, dude, I was born over 10 pounds. I was the lightest of the three queering boys. But I was 22 inches long, and my mom said, that's a joke, because my knees were like this. She was like, she's, to this day, my almost 80-year-old mother carries this resentment to whoever was in the birthing room that they measure me, because she says, your knees were so, you would have been way over 23 inches long if they would have stretched your legs out. Like, I was born humongoid, right? Like, that's just who I am. I have pictures of me in, in Sunday school where I'm almost as tall as my son. It's sort of like, is, I don't kid that he looks like a little kid, but yet, is he like an intern for the church? Like, how is he? He's like, no, that's me in preschool, right? Mrs. Burt, Lois Burt, my sweet kindergarten teacher. She was kind of short, but in kindergarten, I was almost as tall as her, right? People always say, I wish I was as tall as you. And I was like, well, where do you buy your clothes? <laughs> do you get to buy shoes at normal people stores, right? Thank God for Ultra because they have, they have like the, the 15, 16. I get very territorial when I go there. Anybody ever been to the Ultra store in the outlet? Like it's the shoes that I always wear, except for these. Um, they're amazing. And they have this entire 15, 16 section. And I get so mad. Like I get so righteously indignant whenever I see like a 14 or even a 13 or a 12 stat. I was like, no, you have your day. This is my section, right? But they have like an entire section. It's like, oh, this is a little slice of what normality must be like, right? But here's the thing. Growing up being the big kid, I was also kind of pudgy. I was uncoordinated. I was just awkward. Things haven't changed very much. <laughs> I never felt like I fit. I never felt like I was accepted. I wanted so badly to be accepted, but I always felt rejected. So as I got into middle school, I started stretching out a little bit more, trimming down a little bit more, getting a little more athletic, getting a little less awkward looking, things like that. And so in, in middle school and high school, I started really leaning into those things and gravitating towards those, hey, maybe I can use this to my advantage, right? And so I dove all into sports and clubs and grades and popularity and dating and, and even church because I wanted to cover all my bases, right? Like wherever I I was at, I wanted to find acceptance. And I would do anything that I needed to wherever I was at to find that acceptance. Because something that drove me was fear of rejection. The problem was, is that I always carried the pains of rejection with me. No matter where I was at, I always felt like I was never enough of this or I was always too much of that. As Paul David Tripp says, I was stuck in this life of desperately trying to find horizontally what only Christ could give me vertically. Now, you might identify, right? You might, you might identify with this fear of rejection or this desire for acceptance, right? There's so many voices around us that are either saying we're accepting, we're accepting, or we're rejecting you, right? And some of those voices are outside of us. Some of those voices are inside of us. It's easy to feel lost and hopeless. We strive, we work, we yearn for things and people and experiences to make us feel okay. We run to the voices that promise acceptance, 
But the problem is, is more often than not, most of the time, those voices that say that they're going to accept us, we realize they only accept us as long as we tow the line. As we continue to do what we're told that we need to do. Here's the ironic part, is that what I'm finding is that the most accepting and tolerant voices end up being the least accepting and tolerant. I mean, look at how rampant cancel, cancel culture is, right? Like if you would have said cancel culture when I was a kid, I would be like, what? And now we all know what cancel culture is. You step out of line, you're gone. You're done. Guys, let's be honest. That's far right. That's far left. That's far up. That's far down. Everywhere on the fringes, it's if you don't tow our line to a T of whatever we say it is in this moment, you're canceled. You're rejected. And then let's be honest, like Jesus comes in, he obviously knows what's going on, but if he was a normal person, he'd be like, wow, the people love me, they accept me, they want me as their savior, as their Messiah, right? I'm accepted, but how fickle is that? How fickle is that? We always wonder how long the accolades and the acceptance will last. Well, this is the heart of Palm Sunday, right? A crowd of seemingly adoring, adoring fans actually turns on the one that they are cheering. The one who created the world steps into the world to save it from itself, but gets ejected. Now, things this, move, this morning are going to be, we're going to be taking a larger section. And, and typically, if, you, if you're, if you're a, a regular here, you know, we usually either kind of take short chunks and kind of dig into it. But this morning is just different. It's a different story, right? And I, I want to do it justice. So what we're going to do, I apologize. I'm going to read the whole story. I know a lot of us have heard this story before and we're very familiar with it and we've seen it and heard it. And it's sort of like, we know exactly. It's kind of like when we went to go see Prince of, Prince of Egypt. Remember the movie about uh, uh, Joseph and Pharaoh uh, that, that was put out years ago. We actually went with our kids and Nicole's parents and Nicole's dad was a pastor and a seminary dean and a college president and everything like that. And we're like halfway through the movie and all of a sudden we just, <clears throat> and we're like, dad, you're full asleep. He goes, I know how it ends. <laughs> Don't be like that. Okay. So, so I pray that we can approach this story with a fresh set of eyes. For some of us, it might be a newer story. For some of us, this might be like, what? I pray that all of us can have that type of attitude, this, this type of vision this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your uh, uh, Bible app on your phone, you can do that, or we have it up here too. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Sorry, Luke 22, verse 39. Sorry, I don't even know what I said. Luke 22, verse 39. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. I love this, because remember, he just finished up the, the Last Supper, right? He had the first ever communion. This is my body broken for you. This is my cup, new covenant shed for you. And then, and then what does he do? He goes out by himself. He goes to the Mount of Olives, as he usually did. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, 
And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last, he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't so that you will not give in to temptation. Verse 47. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. Remember last week, at the end of the passage, he says, hey, get swords, right? And they were like, do we have two of them amongst them? Because that'll do, right? And so they were like, this is our time. It's time to fight, right? Rise up. We brought the swords and one of them struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant, a servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. I love how it says it was a girl, and Peter said, like, no, she was a woman. She, I mean, she was a big woman. I mean, she, she, she was scary, right? It's a girl, and he says, woman. This is how delusional he is at this point. I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I am not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. That is the scariest sounding chicken I've ever heard of. I mean, can you imagine, right? It says at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Oh, right? Immediately he looked at him and, and the, the Lord's words flushed through Peter's mind before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. At daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. Jesus was led before this high council. Now, this is like the, the, the court of religious law, right? He goes from, he goes from um, the, the arrested in the garden to being brought in front of the religious lower court. And they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated in the, right, in the place of power at God's right hand. They all shouted, so you are claiming to be the son of God. And he replied, 
You said that I am. Why do we need other witnesses? They said, we ourselves heard him say it. Now he goes into the Roman state court, right? He's at the religious Jewish court. Now he goes to the Roman state court. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray and telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government. And by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. And we know that this is false because he says, render under Caesar what Caesar's. He didn't say not to pay taxes. In fact, he said the, the opposite, but they're twisting the truth. They're saying he's, he's claiming to be the Messiah, the king. And, and, and the Roman government said only Caesar is king. Only Caesar is God, right? So Pilate asked them, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Verse four, Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became ins- insistent. But he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, is he a Galilean? Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas, because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Now we go back to the territorial court, right? Third court date <laughs> in, one, in one night. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and was and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. This is the same Herod that John the Baptist called out for sleep for incest. And, and so Herod, uh, his, his what, what sister slash lover said, what, why would give you anything, right? And, and it says, I want John the Baptist's head. And now Herod is so clueless to the situation. He goes, oh, I want to see Jesus perform a miracle. Let's bring him in, right? He's not really genuine, right? This is pretty, pretty twisted. Verse nine, he asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Can we climb into this room? It's dark. It's late at night. You have the, the, the government leaders. You have the territorial leaders. And then you have the religious leaders. And, and the one guy said, I brought them to you. And, 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 and Herod's kind of like, hey, tell me this. Tell me this. What about this? What about that? And the whole time you have these religious leaders that are yelling and accusing and saying horrible things about Jesus. And Jesus is silent. He's silent. Verse 11. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. See, Jesus brings people together. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people. And he announced this verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. Now he goes from the religious court to the government court, to the local court, to the court of public opinion. Verse 18, then a mighty roar rose from the crowd and with one voice, they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. 
See, Barabbas was a zealot. He was out there saying, we're going to take out Rome by force. I am a real, true Israelite, and we are going to take out the oppressors, right? He was a, he was a, a hero amongst the people. And then the other people are kind of like, oh, Barabbas, you're just making things worse for us. Let's just toe the line. Let's just, he was a polarizing figure, right? And, and so what happened is that they were saying, we want him, we want him released and Jesus arrested he was also convicted of murder. Verse 20, Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Verse 26, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside, the soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd, because think about this here, right? Like other, other gospels talk about how Jesus is, is flogged with the cattail of nine. And then that's basically a leather whip that has, has uh, like glass and bone and pottery like melded into the end of the whip and they would hit his back and then they would rip it. And it wasn't just a lashing. It was literally the hit would hurt, but the pull hurt worse because with that came flesh and the Romans were sadistic. They knew exactly how far they could torture someone before they killed him. And so they don't talk about it in this gospel, but in the other gospels, they talk about how literally they beat him to within an inch of his life. And then they put the cross beam of the, the cross on his shoulders. This cross is heavy. <laughs> this is tiny compared to what Jesus carried. And so why couldn't Jesus carry? Because he was literally whipped within an inch of his life. And so they handed this over. He carried it for a while, but then they had Simon and they said, you're going to carry it. Verse 27, a large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned to them and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? This is pretty deep stuff. He says it's going to get worse before it gets better. He's warning of the suffering to come. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. A lot of you are familiar with this, but basically a lot of times what they would do is they would just tie them up 
But when they wanted to in, 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 uh, inflict even worse pain, they would take these big spikes and they would drive it through. A lot of times we have, we, we always say through here, through your hands and your feet, but actually hand is, is from here on down what they would do. Uh, there's medical documentation on this and how the Romans crucified. They would put it right here because if you do it here, it would just rip right out. And so if you're hung through the middle of your hands, you know, you're falling down. So over time, I'm sure it's trial and error, right? Because they had, they had plenty of people to kill is they would actually put it in here because that way your wrist muscle, your wrist uh, joint would actually lock it into place. So they would nail him like that. And then they would cross the feet like that and they would drive a big old stake right through there. And you didn't die from the nails. You didn't die from anything other than suffocation. Because what happens when you have your arms up like this is that over time, your lungs stop working and you drown in your own fluids. Because you can't expirate, you can't, you can't get rid of it, right? And so basically, when you died of crucifixion, you drowned in, up in the air. That's twisted. That's, that's horrifying. And so what happens is that you're trying to like, <gasps> like that. And so when it says Jesus is, is dying, when he nailed him to the cross, he knows. And, and here's the thing. People could be up there for days. You can last a couple days without water. You can last a long time without food, but the water, you would either, you would, you know, what's crazy is that you would be so thirsty, but you were drowning. Terrible. We cannot skip over these passages because there was a price that was paid. And the criminals were also crucified, one at his right and one at his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Here's a secret about me. I'm a nice guy until I'm not. I'm not proud of it. I value loyalty. I love loyalty. I try to be nice, but sometimes I have a hard time with grace. Because if you cross me, oh, my sinfulness comes out. The thought of Jesus looking out over the people that have been mocking him and ridiculing him and torturing him and nailing him to a cross and then gawking at him. And what is his prayer for them? Oh, fire of Lord Jesus, fire of God, come down. No, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice at his feet, right? Like he's, he's not even dead and they're, they're, they're adding more mockery to it. Verse 35, the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said, let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So if you're the Messiah, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. It's like in, in college, I, part of an internship, I, I went to and spent like a weekend in a homeless shelter, right? And I went incognito. I had my backpack, my contacts, my Bible, and, and that was it, right? And it was telling story. We were just, I was, they thought I was homeless with them and stuff like that. And we were going around this circle one afternoon and it was kind of like, what's your story? And then, you know, hear everybody's story. Well, what's your story? And I was like, oh gosh, well guys, this is, I'm, I'm actually not really homeless. I'm like, like tomorrow afternoon, there's going to be a car out front to, to pick me up. They're like, 
yeah, right behind the car. That's going to pick me up. Yeah. What's your story? You know, like they didn't believe me. They were mocking me. They were, they were like, oh yeah, that's a good one. Right. And so this is kind of the heart that this guy is saying. He says, Hey, save yourself and save us too while you're at it. Right. He had given up on everything. But the, the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die because of our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. By this time, it was about noon. And darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. And suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, He worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus's friends, including the the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, but he had not agreed with the decision and the actions of the other religious leaders. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Then he took the the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where, he was, where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments in, 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 to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. That is such an intense story. The plots, the subplots, the storylines, the characters, how, how, how people change, right? How some people just, it, it's amazing. There's so much to dig out of this passage. But I simply want to just focus on this, is rejection and acceptance. Look at the rejection in this story. His own disciples rejected him. They fall asleep. The disciples literally fall asleep. While Jesus is praying, it's kind of like, guys, you are in the most cataclysmic moment in the history of the world, and you can't stay awake. (laughs) Peter denies him three times. Peter, who, I will die for you, right? And he says, I don't know him, little girl. I mean, grown woman, right? Judas rejects him for, for, for money, and, and the irony here, you guys know me, I am all about little Easter eggs, about little golden nuggets. What did he betray him with? A sign of acceptance. Jesus came, or sorry, Judas came to Jesus with a kiss. A kiss is meant as a welcoming sign, right? Like, I accept you. 
and he uses it to betray, to betray Jesus. So the disciples reject him. The crowds reject him, right? They want him to be his cha- their, their champion, but then they shout, crucify, crucify. We'd rather have this terrible, mangy criminal than you. The soldiers, they mock, they beat, they torture him for sport. The religious leaders, the people who had been prophesying, they were not prophesying, but looking at the prophecies and had been teaching everybody, look for the Messiah, look for the Messiah, look for the Messiah. Those are the ones that were supposed to point people to see Jesus is the Messiah. And what do they do? They want to kill him and get him out of the picture because he was screwing up their plans. And then the government leaders, both Pilate and Herod, were so worried about their own rule of, well, we don't want the people to riot, so I guess we'll hand them over to you, right? They worried about perception more than truth. But you know the one that really gets me? Is in verse, chapter 22, verse 42. Where, where Jesus pleads with the Father, says, Father, if you can please take this cup from me, do it. But what's the answer? Nope. It looks like Jesus is rejected. In another gospel, it says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me, right? From the earthly perspective, it looks like God the Father has rejected God the Son. But what Jesus says in that verse tells us exactly what was happening. What does he say? What does he want to be removed from him? the cup. Now, what's interesting is that the cup played a big part in the Jewish culture and identity and understanding because a cup is a person's lot or experience. It's what God sets before a person. It's their divine appointment. A cup is basically, God, what do you have in my life for me right now? What am I in the middle of them, uh, in the middle of right now? And here's the interesting part is that if you look at the word cup in the Bible, it means two different things. One, if you look in the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament revelation, the cup means God's wrath. And it's meant to be poured out because God is not an unhealthy, brooding, angry God. It's kind of like you you done messed up (laughs) and now I'm going to pour out the punishment on you. I'm not going to hold on to it because I'm going to release it. Disobedience requires punishment. That's what love is. If our parents love us, they discipline us. They pour out wrath on us. Appropriate to the crime, right? Like you spilled milk, you know, that's not appropriate. But we always use it. I like how I look down onto a highway and, and, and all the time my mind goes to, if I'm a kid running out across Redwood Road, what would the most loving thing to do? Get over here, right? That is love. And so we can't understand that God is this angry, brooding, I can't wait for you to screw up. No, his love means that he has teeth and he wants us to be close to him. And he draws us to himself. And sometimes that wrath pushes us towards him. The other understanding of the cup is salvation. If you look through the Psalms and if you look through the Gospels, you see that the cup is the new covenant between God and his people. 
And I love it because the cup is so symbolic. Just like Jesus turned water into wine, Jesus turns God's wrath into salvation. He turns our rejection into acceptance. And that's the big idea this morning is that Jesus's rejection actually wins our acceptance. If you're like me, that's really good news. Because I'm always wondering, do I measure up? Am I good enough? Am I this? Am I too much that? Am I this? It doesn't matter (laughs) because God accepts you if you surrender to him. Now, here's the thing, a little side tangent. If you do not, if you weren't grown up or if you don't have a Trinitarian understanding of, of, of the Godhead, it can seem like God is the angry brooding God. And so Jesus comes in and saves the day and says, it's with me, pops, they're okay. Thanks, Jesus. God, bad guy, Jesus, good guy, right? And you have this, this, this yin and this yang, this, this kind of dichotomy within God. But if you understand that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and has been working in unison and harmony ever since the beginning of anything, we understand that this is a part of a larger story. This is everything that, in in the words of Hannibal from A-Team, I love it when a plan comes together, right? Again, I date myself all the time. But it's God saying, see, this is what it's all been leading up to. This is what this is all working towards. God is working his plan. And so Jesus, in his prayer, we see this beautiful template for what we need to take for ourselves. He says, please take this, but your will, not mine. Jesus is aligning his identity. He's aligning himself with his God-given identity and mission in life. Great quote here. True prayer is not bringing God in line with our plans, but rather submitting our plans to the Lord's designs. Amen? That's what prayer is. It's not just going to him with our little wish list here and there. It's actually surrendering our wish list to him. It's saying, God, this is what I'm praying for right now. I'm praying for, for, to make it through the month financially this month. I'm praying for my marriage to, to stay together. I'm praying for healing. I'm praying for this. I'm praying for that. I'm praying for my friend. I'm praying. But those are my wishes, God. What are you wanting? What are you wanting to do in my life, in my community, in our church, in our, in, our, in, our, in our valley, in this nation, in this world? God, what are you up to right now? I know what I want. I know what I'm afraid of. I know what my desires lead towards. But what is your heart with all of this? The cross was meant as the ultimate sign of rejection, right? It was intentionally cruel and dehumanizing. But Jesus turns it into a gateway and the means to our acceptance and salvation. What seemed like God saying no was actually him working towards a much bigger yes. And God was there every step of the way. Look what happened as Jesus is dying, right? We got from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, the brightest part of the day, it went dark. That, that just blows my mind, right? And, and the other gospels, I forget which one other way, it says that there was massive earthquakes. But what happens right in the moment that Jesus dies? The temple veil is torn from top to bottom. If you know your history on that, that is not just like me just taking a curtain, right? I mean, that thing was, I think, like 30 feet high. It was like super thick. It was meant to be impenetrable, right? It was meant to be this barrier, 
between dirty humanity and a holy God. And the only person that could go through there was one high priest. And he went through to go plead and to make sacrifices for the nation. And only one person was worthy. What they'd even do is they'd even tie a cord around his leg to where when he went in, if all of a sudden he'd have a stroke or a, or a heart attack or, or he just died of old age or whatever, if he died, nobody else was worthy to go in. And so all of us are like, hey, Bartholomew, where are you at? Nothing. Pull the rope. Let's pull him out. That's how holy God is, is that there was barriers. But Jesus says, it's for everybody. It's a part of the plan. How many of us have been told in our lives, you are not worthy. You're not good enough of a person. How many of us have been told, well, you don't give to your, you don't do this. You don't. Jesus says, it's me. Do you surrender to me? Do you find freedom in me? Not in your efforts. Get off the freaking treadmill. I should have put that on your, on, as a quote on your card. Get off the freaking treadmill. Because Jesus wants you to be running with him, not trying to earn through your performance. Right? Like that is freedom. That is good news. We don't have to try to, oh, Jason, you're such a good person. No, I'm not. And it doesn't matter if I am or not, because I'm with Jesus. Because Jesus covered my sin on the cross. He is the one who made the way. He is the one who gave me acceptance. And what anybody else thinks doesn't matter. Anybody who follows Jesus has full access to a complete relationship with God. So to close, the question we need to be asking ourselves is how are we trying to find acceptance horizontally? And how are we ignoring what Jesus has given us vertically? What people, places, experiences, things, ideals, thoughts, whatever, are we aligning ourselves with with this world? Instead of saying, God, my life is yours and whatever you want, I want that to come to fruition. Again, I hear so many voices swirling in our world right, of telling us that are clamoring for our attention. They're saying, do this, buy this, wear this, agree with this, post this, whatever, and you'll be accepted until you're not. How easy it is to try to rely on these other things, but here's the thing, none of those things can be our savior. None of those things can be our Messiah. None of those things can give us true eternal acceptance. That's only in Jesus. None of those things have literally given everything for you to free us from your past, to free you from your past and to transform you into the future that God has for you. Always laugh tomorrow morning. Some of us report for spring football, 6am. Can't wait. I love sports. But I'll never forget the words of my dad-in-law who said, Jason, don't forget, sports makes a great goal and a crappy God. I needed to hear that when I was was Drake's age. Your job makes a great goal, but a terrible God. Your political leanings make a great goal, but a terrible God. Your family makes a great goal, 
but a terrible God. Your hobbies, all the things that we look to for meaning and identity and purpose and acceptance, they won't last for eternity. Only God does. There's not going to be Republicans or Democrats. There's not going to be right or left. There's not going to be rich or poor. There's not going to be male or female. There's not going to be any of that stuff that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things for eternity. There's either Jesus or nothing. And that's what needs to color our lives. Sin is a huge problem, especially sin that calls itself not sin. (laughs) The most dangerous lie is the one that's closest to the truth. But sin is anything that goes against the design of the creator. We have to realize that Jesus died and paid the ultimate sacrifice to set us free from the power of those things. When we surrender, surrender, surrender ourselves to him, those things lose their power. Yes, we are still going to struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. It's just part of the deal. Even the apostle Paul said he gave, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Why? To remember that God's Strength is his power is made perfect in our weakness. We're still human. We're still going to struggle. It's all part of it. But the shame, the guilt, the regret, the hiding, the striving, all those things are powerless. Remember, it's only awkward if we make it awkward, right? So we can run to him without worrying about anything else. So this week is leading up to Easter, right? I would invite you, I would encourage you to to do the Easter reading plan. Spend that time with God. It doesn't matter, old, young, whatever. Read that plan, right? Spend time just processing the story. There's a couple great movies in the last 10 years that have come out. The Passion of the Christ, Risen, Son of God. I think they're all on Netflix. Powerful stories of what happened. And then the last thing is just simply just pray, just talk to God. Just talk to him and ask him, hey, God, what am I revealing? Reveal to me what I'm relying on other than you. How am I getting sucked into slavery to these other things? How am I being controlled? How am I finding acceptance in things that are taking me away from you? And what does it mean to find my true and complete acceptance in you and you alone? If you're wrestling with these things, please talk to me. Please talk to me. I don't want you to be going through this alone. Talk to me, talk with someone else here. Just find somebody that you know loves the Lord and follows him and and let's process that together. If this is core to who you are and you've been kind of just like on autopilot for a while, this matters for eternity. Reach out to someone. Reach out to someone and say, hey, how are you doing? I heard this message. Listen to it and let's talk about it, right? Reach out to somebody and share the good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that you draw us to yourself. We thank you that we are not, you did, I would say, you didn't just give us a list of do's and don'ts and then say, get out there, good luck. But instead, God, you give us yourself. God, you sacrificed everything for us. 
And so, God, we want to surrender to that. God, I pray that, that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds and our lives, God, that, that we would run to you, that, that if we find ourselves gravitating, getting sucked into things that pull us away from you and, and your, whole, your whole call to love God and to love people and to serve the world, God, that, that we'd recognize those things and we would, we would keep them, we'd put them in their place and we would we'd run to you instead. God, I pray that this week, that, that if it's heavy, it's okay. We need, to, we need to see the weight that you bore for us on the cross. God, the, the, the point though, the final word is not that heaviness. Instead, it's realizing how free and how light we are because of you. God, I pray that we can run to you, that we can, we can hop up into your lap, God, that we can spend that time with you and that even when life is going crazy and we don't know which way is up, God, we know that you're right there with us. God, that we are fully accepted in you. God, that you love us enough to, to transform us, that you love us enough to set us free from the things that are ensnaring us and, and tripping us up. So God, we love you. We surrender to you. Praise in your name. Amen.